this just in. <laughs> we are going to celebrate communion together, which is fantastic because that's how my sermon ends, <laughs> leading us towards communion. And I've been thinking in my mind, how am I going to make that work and remind you for when you do have communion that this is what I said. So uh, that's perfect. Um, my name is Derek Mellaby. I'm the site director of the One Life program over at Three Springs, and I'm so thankful for Ethan and Seth and Meg and Logan for leading us, and Luke, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, really appreciate it. It's just been a joy to, to walk with you and know you through this time, and it's been a joy to know this congregation. Um, it's a very welcoming place, and we're so grateful for the ways that you've cared for us, maybe in ways you haven't known for my wife Heidi and our three little eaglets <laughs> up here. Um, it, it has, we've been blessed to be up here. Uh, arrived in August, and it's been a blessing. We are, I am, and the boys are, because I said so, lifelong Eagles fans. <laughs> and so it's, um, you know, I think God, I was thinking about this this week, I think God had me preach this Sunday so that I would think about something else this week. <laughs> and it worked, because I haven't, have, I haven't given it the mental energy that it deserves for this afternoon. But, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about this. It's just a game, right? It's just a game. They'll be in it again. <laughs> we'll see. You know, I'm just thinking about the snow falling and this morning, just quiet and still. And so I thought what I'd do is, I know we've prayed a few times, but I'm just going to, let's just be still together as the snow falls. Let's have a time of, of silent reflection. There's been so many rich things shared already. And so let's just reflect together. Uh, in stillness, and then I'll break the silence with a with a prayer. Let's do that together. Lord God, you are, you are good, and you are good to us, and you love us. You know us, and you love us, and we're thankful. Lord, we confess that that voice is not the voice we hear most strongly in our lives all the time, and yet we trust by faith that you are near, that you're close, that your love changes us. Lord, we confess 
that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. By the things we've done and by the things we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved you. We have not loved you uh, with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, Lord, for the sake of your Son Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Renew us. And lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Are you tired? Are you tired? I'm sure you're a little tired. It's early. It's a Sunday morning. Big day ahead of us. But are you tired, tired? Are you exhausted? Have you ever felt like you're not enough? Have you ever wondered, does God really love me? Could he? Does he? Have you ever wondered, does God really love me? Are you bored? <laughs> That's a great question right now. Are you bored? How are you doing? How are we doing? In a previous life, I was doing a lot of speaking. And I, I, what I did, I started this thing called the College Transition Initiative. And I would go around to churches and schools and give talks about transitioning from high school to college or to life after high school. And I would talk how to be spiritually prepared for that journey, for that next chapter of their life story. And uh, so it, it, was, it was a seminar. It was like three hours long, and it was with parents and students together. One of my favorite things about it is what I tried to do was right at that pivotal moment of change, right during that transition, that I would create some space for parents and sons or daughters to have more meaningful conversations about what's next after high school. And I'll never forget, I was heading out to Topeka, Kansas, and I got a phone call from a mother. And I get phone calls like this, not too often, but enough to know that uh, we were going to have a good conversation. And she was asking me all these questions about the seminar. She was thinking about bringing her daughter to it, but she had all these little questions. But I could tell she wasn't asking the question that she wanted to ask the most. And so I said, do you have something you want to ask me? Like, it's OK. It's fine. Do you have a question? She's like, yeah, I just don't know how to say it. I said, just go ahead, say it. She said, okay. Are you boring? Are you boring? Well, I didn't know how to answer that. It's a great question. I can imagine what this was like for her, for the mom to think about bringing her daughter to this three-hour thing. And the last thing she would want was to be dragging her daughter to some boring thing. It would be a long time. Thank you, son. Uh, you know, it would be a long time to sit and listen mother-daughter relationships. Uh, so I, I don't know. I tried to go, tried to act 
not as boring on the phone and insert a few jokes here and there and get her to like me, I guess, and think that it would be worthwhile. But are you boring? I'll tell you, that has stuck with me. Um, I don't want to say I've shaped my life around it, um, but it certainly is a question that's in my mind, uh, especially this morning and when I get in front of people. I, I don't know. But what I do know is two things I learned about being boring that has been really helpful to me. Um, one is there was a study done not too long ago called the Doodle Study. And what they discovered, uh, what they tried to discover was um, if you're listening to somebody talk and you doodle pictures, do you retain information? It's a good question. So they would bring hundreds of people in this room and they'd tell them a bunch of things and, and one of the groups was allowed and encouraged to doodle while they listened and the other group was not allowed to doodle. And it turned out that the doodlers retained more information. And that was really encouraging to me because when I'm speaking, people are drawing some of the most profound things I've ever seen. In fact, I, I just started having contests. It's fine, please doodle and we'll, at the end we'll see who has drawn the best picture. It's helpful to me because I know you're retaining the most information. Um, I don't know about sleeping and listening. They haven't had a study on that yet. Uh, the other one uh, that I found out recently was really encouraging was uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers. The students at One Life take a course on C.S. Lewis's life and writing. And um, he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It's this fictitious story of a senior devil writing to a junior devil. Um, these series of letters about how to keep somebody from becoming a Christian and how to um, basically tempt him and challenge him in his walk with God. And uh, they uncovered a letter recently of C.S. Lewis. Somebody had written C.S. Lewis and uh, said, how did you get the idea for the screw tape letters? And C.S. Lewis said, I got the idea for this while listening than I've ever heard. Well, that was encouraging too. Uh, because I know if I, if I am boring, I could insert a Christian book of the 20th century. And um, so if you're start, starting to get an idea, you know, take a break from your picture and just, you know, some notes. No, but are you boring? Uh, are you bored? Are you bored with life? You matter. What are you worth? That's a good question. What are you worth? Do you think you are worth it? <laughs> Whatever you're worth. Do you think you're worth it? Think people can change. Do you think you can change? How? We're going to read Ephesians 2, and uh, I'm going to work through the whole chapter. I know last week we had a wonderful time looking at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Uh, I'm going to spend some time in there. Actually, the bulk of my time will be spent in there. So let's look together. And I'll say this right up front, that Ephesians 2, the chapter 2 of Ephesians, has completely changed my life. And I know that's cliche. Uh, Chick-fil-A changed my life, too, and I can tell you stories. But... <laughs> It has changed my life, my perspective. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It changes everything. It radically changes and alters what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, 
and what we think about God's mission in the world. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, changes, radically alters what we think about God, religion, faith, even Christianity, what we think about ourselves, and what we think about God's mission in the world. First, what we think about God. Most people think that God is up there somewhere. He's looking down at us. He's probably mad at us. And we have to do something to a certain way, or maybe say a certain prayer, or maybe wear certain clothes, or not wear certain clothes. Something that we're going to have to do to earn something for him to like us, to love us, to pay attention to us. We're down here, he's up there, and we're going to get his attention. Religion is what we do to get God to do something for us. That's how most people think about God. We're doing this to get God's attention, and then he will do something for us. He will bless us. If we're nice, if we're not naughty, if we're good, if we say the right thing, if we act the right way, I think most people think this way. I think many Christians think this way about our God. So let's see if this holds up when we read Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Dead is the key word to this whole passage. I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a little town called Mount Joy off of Mount Pleasant Road. You can imagine what my life was like. You have to be smiling all the time. They send you home if you're from school. Uh, no, so I lived in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania off of Mount Pleasant Road. That's what my life was. And we lived in this house that kind of sat up on top of a hill surrounded by farms, farms everywhere. And um, basically, here's the idea. If you wanted cats, you could have cats, right? All you had to do was just put some food in your garage or just put food outside, and it wouldn't take cats. At some, I don't even remember why we did this, but we just started doing boarding some cats. So we'd put some food out. They'd come. We'd have cats for a while. I'm not a huge um, we didn't name the cats, we just numbered them. This is just part of what it's like to live in this area. Um, and I'll never forget this one time, my dad came home from work. And I was at this little kitchen table, and I was sitting there doing the homework. And this would happen often. Um, I could see how the rest of my night was going to go. My dad's a wonderful person. Some of you know him. He's a fantastic father. I'm so glad he was my dad. So this story was... So I'm sitting doing my homework, and I could hear something happen in the garage. And then I heard, and this would happen sometimes, um, he, the, the, yeah, the door handle was, it was pretty hard. There was a bang, uh, a slam. He came in, he looked at me, and he said, Derek, go bury the cat. And I was just, you know, uh, number four, I think it was. So 
okay. And I was maybe Jacob's age, maybe a few years older, and I've never buried anything before in my life. And so I get, and I'm sorry if you, if you like cats, just hang with me for the rest of this. together with your phones and look at dead animals all the time. This is what you do. And they're like, their tongues are hanging out and there's blood everywhere and I'm supposed to be like excited for you. So you're going to listen. You're going cat story. Okay, so I go outside. I'm looking at the deadest This is and I have to like to get it all on the shovel took multiple steps. And so I'm trying to like get every, I talk about its eyes, but I know I'm losing some of you. So I'm like trying to get it on the shovel. Then I go up, rain coming down. I'm thinking about my homework. And what's happening to me? And I'm like, put the cat down and I try to dig this hole. The ground was hard. I'm just, I, I dug a hole like this big, which doesn't work. I found out my dad was, a little mad the second time when we had to rebury the cat. <clears throat> so I'm just like trying to get it in the ground. I thought about this story this week because, without going into any much more detail, it was the deadest thing I've ever seen. Now Paul's going to use this word dead. And when you hear him use this word dead, here's what he means. Dead. End of the shovel, dead. Um, another person, I was listening to a pastor talk about this, and he had a great line. He said, it's not like we're in a pool drowning, and then God comes along, and we're like trying to, you know, get our breath for the side, and he throws us something and saves us. It's not that. We are bottom of the pool dead. We are bottom of the pool dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But, but, but because of his great love for us, but God, who is rich in his mercy, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. We were dead, and we've been made alive. Paul wants to make it clear. It's not, uh, it's not just the Gentiles who were dead, although that's who he's talking about in Ephesians. It's all of us, everyone, Jews and Gentiles, which is going to come into play a little bit later, but all of us are dead. Everyone, Jews and Gentiles and Paul. Not a little dead, not mostly dead. End of the shovel, bottom of the pool, dead. But God, 
who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace, grace, grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what is God like? God pursues us. We sang about it this morning. We believe in a God who pursues us. The rest of the world says that God is something that we try to pursue, that we reach out for. But no, the Bible says that God pursues us. Why? Out of his love and kindness towards us. Paul will say, leads us to repentance. So many people don't believe that. Maybe you don't believe that. That God takes the initiative. God, this is the difference between Christianity, every religion, and every thought in the world, that God would pursue us out of his love and kindness towards us. Is this how people think when they think about God? No, God's up there somewhere. We have to do something. He's probably mad. And if we do it right, then he'll love us. The Bible says God pursues his creation because of his love. Have you ever had this thought, I have to clean up my act, and then God will love me? Have you ever thought of that before? Clean up my act, and then God will love me. Listen to this commentator. It is important to hear that the objects of God's attention are all dead. Their only qualification for his gracious favor is their hopelessly sinful rebellion. That's what qualifies you. You are a Christian. Why? Because you are hopelessly sinful and rebelling against God. That's what qualified you for his grace. They need not us, the objects of God's attention, us dead people, we need not to clean up first. In fact, being dead, we cannot. The worst, oh, I love this line. The worst person imaginable is for that reason eligible. The worst person imaginable in the world is for that very reason eligible for God's love and grace and kindness and pursuit. We receive grace, Paul says, not by producing anything in exchange for it, but simply by succumbing to God's gracious mercy, by entrusting our fate, our life to him. In short, we are saved by grace. To fully grasp the gospel is to fully grasp our deadness. We try so hard to hold on to some idea that we bring something some aliveness to the table when we approach God, and it's a trap. It's an exhausting trap. 
to think that you have to do something to earn God's love and affection, that he's just... with you that's an exhausting trap and for some of us we make that decision to follow Jesus and we stay in that trap does God love me I don't know let me do this let me do more. pray more it's hard to read the Bible when you're dead God pursues us it's him who makes us alive have you ever thought that you have to do something to prove your love for God? Or that you have to do something to earn God's approval? Hey, you could get into this trap with a building. I've been around here a little bit. I've heard about uh, as soon as we act a certain way, things God might bless us in certain ways. I don't know. I think God is blessing, God is pursuing, God is shaping us now. Have you ever thought you had to do something to prove your love for God? Or that you had to do something to earn God's approval? That you had to do something to get a relationship with God? In the Bible, it never... It's in my notes, Dave, just so you know. Genesis. What came first? Or the command not to eat of the fruit. God's relationship with the people. And then the command. And then they broke the command. And then God pursues his creation. But the point is here. First, the relationship. And then the tree. For Israel, what came first? God's relationship and pursuit of the people of God of Israel? Or God's law and his commandments? The relationship came first. And then they broke it. And then God pursues his creation even more. Jesus at his baptism, and we've heard it already. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Before Jesus had done anything. He could have just said, this is my son. Now wait and see what he does, and then I'm going to love him and show you how well pleased I am. No, Jesus at his baptism just receives it. This is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Before Jesus did. Does that mean that God doesn't want to change you? No, he does. There is work to be done, for sure. But he has time. He has a lot of time. What he wants, what he desires, is an intimate relationship with you first. He wants to know you. He wants to hang with you, as we've been saying this week. He wants a relationship with you, a real relationship. God will change you from the inside out. He will begin to change everything about you, actually. But it will all be his doing. Free, earning to the gift 
of God's grace. First, I think this radically changes everything we think about God. Second, this radically changes everything we think about ourselves. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift, not by works so that no one can boast. It's, it's a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Some more lyrics. It's a gift. But here's the word. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared advance for him to do. Here's why I think Paul goes out of his way to say, you're going to do good works, in advance for you to do, I think it's just more of even when you do these good works, God prepared them. You boast in that. Uh, you've been saved by grace. You were dead, you're alive, you were a slave, you're free. You lived a life of earning and now you live a life of, of grace and gift and you're going to go do things, but just know even when you do those things, God prepared them in advance for you to do, for you to walk. Even those good things were done by God for you. But I want to just say a few things about this word workmanship. Does anybody have any other word there for workmanship? Any other translation? In verse 10? What do you have? Handiwork? Yeah, that's a good word. Workmanship or handiwork, that's good. Did you ever say masterpiece? Yeah, I really like that word, masterpiece. So we have God's workmanship, God's handiwork, God's masterpiece. Any others? One translation I really liked, it said, um, we, are God's, we are the work of God's hands. I like that too. We are the work of God's hands. That's handiwork. That's, that's workmanship, that's masterpiece, but it's also just reminding us that we are the work of God's hands. And I know because I've been around you enough too, you guys are really good at working with your hands. It's one of the things I've appreciated most, and Heidi has appreciated the most too, to be surrounded by... Joke about me. Um, We are God's masterpiece. In the Greek here, the word is, you know, has a range of meanings, but it's something like we're his work of art. We, some translations get close to saying we're like God's poem. But I like, there's something craft about it, crafty, handy, workmanship, masterpiece. You know, one of the, thank you, Simon. You know, one of the hardest things about working with young people is that they sometimes believe lies about themselves. One of the hardest things about working with young people is just to watch them form some patterns in their life when we're almost done, when we believe lies about ourselves. Don't believe lies about yourself. Am I smart enough? I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not beautiful enough. Here's what you are. You are God's artwork. You're his masterpiece. 
yourself. Here's the second one. Your life is being painted. God is the artist. Imagine a canvas with your life, and God is painting your story. It's your life. And then you mess up. You try to live your life outside of that of that picture, first of all, just know God knows, and he covered that too, and he's still there, and he still has a relationship with you. But here, here's the image I had this week. As you, as you do something and you get outside of that canvas, here's what God does. He just paints that into the picture. And here's what often happens with a painting like that, is it just adds depth to your life. And so, sure, you will have seasons where it seems like you're going off the canvas, and God is going to take that and somehow work that into the masterpiece, into the picture, and that will only add depth. Don't about yourself. Your life is being painted. But here's the other thing. You are a craft of God, his handiwork, masterpiece. You are in process. It will take time. God is patient and kind. And you are worth it. You're so worth it. In fact, God died for you. He is obsessed. He has your picture in his wallet. Do they still do that? I'm imagining God on a business trip in the elevator, annoying people around him because he's showing all these people, strangers, your picture, one or a daughter. Actually, it'd be an awesome. Your picture is on somehow. <laughs> the point is that he's obsessed with you. for helping me think about what should I communicate to middle school. Let them put themselves in. Remember what it was. 12, 13, 14. What was going on in your life? And what do you wish you But this is what she said. She wrote a little letter to herself, and she wanted me to share it with the students, so I share it with you. She said this, dear little me, Dear little me, you are known and loved. Your words are powerful. You don't need to be anything for anyone. You already are someone in Jesus. God isn't surprised by your sin. You are understood. You don't need to make anyone happy, but you also have an insane power to make people feel heard, loved, and understood. Everyone around you is longing to be heard and understood just as much as you do. God, the maker of the stars, the one who made your heart, loves you. He knows who you are. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done and yet loves you and wants to bring you from death.
first of all, I realize that my faith is not about my faith about me. That is so freeing. My faith is about what God is doing in my life. My faith and trust is in him, that he is working, that he is saving me, that he is that he is changing me. Or another phrase we like at the One Life is we are human doing. There are things to do for sure, but first and foremost, we are human beings. And when I see that my faith, my life is of God, from God, from start to finish, that it's not about me, even that bit is not about me, it's all about God. So now I can just be more attentive to what God is doing in me, to what God is doing around me, and to what God is doing. I can be patient when I need to be. I trust that he's God from start to finish. The God of the Bible is the true God who pursues you out of his love and kindness. You are his masterpiece. Briefly, we'll just look at God's mission in the world, Ephesians 2, just to finish up this chapter. I'm just going to read it. I think the connections will be clear. Just know that from the beginning, that when we are reconciled to God, we were alienated from God, and now we're reconciled to God, that that's also going to change the people around us and how we view the people around us, and we will begin to be reconciled to each other. Here's God's mission in the world. Therefore, verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you are all Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. Remember, the Jewish people at this time were so, their whole life was built on trying to please God by the things that they were doing, and somehow Jesus is changing that radically, and now the Gentiles are in on this mission. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, that, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, not only did we have hostility towards God, and yet he pursues us, but we have hostility towards each other, and God is pursuing us. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, no longer slaves and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives 
by his spirit. There's so much there, but in closing, I'll say this. God is creating a worldwide family. We are all made one in Christ. There is so much division in the world. There's so much division in the world. Could the church reveal unity in a way that would bless all the nations of the earth? A place where people are not warring with each other, but are people of peace. Paul knows that when we are reconciled to God, we are also reconciled to each other. We are, by God's grace and gift, and from some people doing some behind-the-scenes work, we are going to celebrate communion together. of practicing it's our practice of union with God and unity with each other the Bible makes it clear that we're to take it seriously and one of the ways we take it seriously is I think what Paul is getting at in that second part of Ephesians chapter 2 and that is this that if you have a problem with a brother or a sister that you would reconcile I think that's just another little practice Another reminder that it's the relationship first and then some kind of religious practice second. That's what it's always been. Make sure the relationship is strong and then we will do some things together. But as we celebrate communion, and it's awesome. Lord God, my hope is um, that I did uh, justice to your text, that this is what you're speaking to us, that this is what you spoke to those in Ephesus. Lord, if it's not, um, may we continually be refined and checked and make sure we want to hear your voice and we want to hear it clearly. We want to know when you speak. So, Lord, I'm thankful for the testimony of your word that reminds us, that shows us, that proves to us your dying love for us, your pursuit of us, your desire to dwell with us. We're grateful for that gift. In the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.